Well, thanks. It's great to be here with you guys. Uh, I don't know why. Well, I know why Jacob asked me. I'm no Leviticus expert, but I did um, stay at a Holiday Inn Express. No, I did. um, Bad joke. I did uh, preach through Leviticus not too long ago. So um, fresh in my mind, Jacob thought uh, maybe I could come and and, uh, walk through this book tonight. I love this series that y'all are doing because one, it helps us all become better Bible readers, more familiar with our Bible, um, what's in our Bible, where things are in our Bible. So hopefully we can be better Bible readers. But I also love this series because it helps us take a step back because oftentimes we're looking micro at our Bibles and looking at the small scale, but this helps us take the step back and look at, okay, what's the big picture here? Where's, what's the big plan? Where is it going? And I think that's a really helpful view to take oftentimes when we come to scripture. So, um, if, if you've ever been to one of my Sunday school classes or anything, you know I can't teach without uh, having show-and-tell books. So I'm going to pass around two books. At the bottom, you'll see I recommended a couple things here. Um, first, uh, so you see the Van Pelt uh, edited volume that uh, Jacob's referenced. Um, you have it here. Um, as, a, as a good, uh, overall, helpful resource, um, do you pass that out, show-and-tell? Okay, there you go. Show and tell. Pass it out. It's a good, uh, good resource. Uh, there's the Old Testament ver- uh, book and there's a New Testament volume. Um, they're both really good, uh, helpful resources. I highly recommend those. They're edited uh, by, uh, the, uh, compiled by, and all the chapters are by um, professors at Reformed Theological Seminary. Um, so kind of an RTS book. Um, so I've got a couple other, if you, if you want to study Leviticus more, a couple other resources. The first one, the best one, I think for an initial, like if you're just trying private devotionals, um, working through it yourself or, or or for more informal purposes, Jay Sklar, uh, this Leviticus, this is a, uh, in the Tyndale Old Testament commentary series, they're, you know, that big, they're, they're not super thick, they're in and out, they're not super deep, but this is really well done. And he goes into some of the deep uh, theology, but doesn't doesn't make you go through all the scholarly literature. Really well done. Highly recommend the Sklar volume. Um, I've got then the next one I would recommend would be this book called Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord: A Biblical Theology of the Book of, Levit- of Leviticus, and it's masterful. It's not a commentary. It's not going verse by verse, but it's masterful in connecting Leviticus to the overall biblical themes, overarching biblical themes of. Um, Eden and exile and and uh, Exodus or uh, and redemption and back to the mountain. We'll touch on those briefly in a little bit. But um, this is really really good. And this I would recommend just for like a book to pick up and read. Um, it's that kind of thing. It's not like a commentary. So um, I'll I'll encourage you to do that one. And then the last one. This is the standard. Um, academic commentary today. Well, that's not technically true, but it's a standard commentary. The academic one's like two volumes, like this thick. It's insane. Like. $400. It's ridiculous. Uh, this one is called by Gordon Winham, a really good commentary. Uh, this and Sklar will get you everything you need just about um, as far as commentary. Oh, and I found a receipt for the uh, for Conrad's for the car uh, in there. So don't know why that's in there. Yeah, it's a $1,200 bill. So <laughs> the other way. Yeah. Uh-huh. All right. Um, so let's, let's think about Leviticus. Um, What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of Leviticus? Goats, rules, rules, law, priests, sprinkling of blood. Yeah. What's that? How to worship. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. Saw this meme right before I started preaching on it. 
and it was um, you know this big train. Uh, in, in the first scene, there's this little, it's like a bus or something that's approaching a, a railroad crossing. And the second one, it's just the train demolishing that that little bus or whatever it is. And uh, superimposed on the train, it said uh, Leviticus. And then the little train, the little um, uh, the little bus is my annual read through the Bible. Um, <laughs> And as Leviticus comes along, and you're like, all right, Genesis, I get the story, it's exciting. Exodus, all right, there's some story here. And then, okay, got the law, we got the Ten Commandments, I got it, I got it. Oh, now we have the Book of the Covenant, and this is kind of getting a little boring. Um, okay, we got the Golden Calf, I got gotcha. you. Tabernacle? And then building the tabernacle, kind of bored, get to Leviticus, okay, new book, I can do this. Oh, seven chapters of sacrifices, right off the bat. What is even going on? It's really, it's really opaque for us to just kind of read through quickly. And we have to do a lot of diving in to say, what's happening? Why are they doing these things? So hopefully we can get to some of that tonight. Um, we can work through the, these notes here. Um, we'll, we'll use this as a launching point, but at any point, just feel free to jump in questions or comments here. Um, this is part of that collection of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the law called different things uh, for different reasons. Genesis through Deuteronomy, these first five books. And, um, it's interesting because Leviticus is the literary center. And I don't think we need to, I don't think we can understate the importance of that in, um, in Hebrew thinking and Hebrew literature. The center was always the most important. It was highlighting a theme. This is the center book. And then the center chapter, not numerically, but content wise, um, and possibly even lengthwise, is chapter 16, which is the Day of Atonement. And this, this is the center of the first five books of the Bible. This, this collection of books that was, for all of the Jewish people, their constitution, effectively. Their covenant constitution. The center of it was the Day of Atonement, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, and this book is the middle. This is an important, important thing. It's not just some tag, some add-on. It's incredibly important for us today. Um, most of it is instructions dictated by God to Moses from the tabernacle. You can just go to Leviticus um, if you have your Bibles. Um, and we'll, we'll see how it's framed here at the beginning. It says, uh, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying. And you see, most of this book is God dictating to Moses. Uh, so these are God's words, all of scripture is God's words, but these are dictated God's words, word for word. Um, we have a couple narratives, uh, which I think I'll, I'll mention in a minute. But it's interesting in the Hebrew, um, the very first word of the book begins with a um, prefix, um, which is a, a prefix for and, the, the vav. Um, it's an and, which in Hebrew indicates a continuation of a previous thought. So the book begins with a vav. It begins with an and. It begins with connecting Leviticus back to the end of Exodus explicitly. Um, and so we go back to the end of Exodus. Well, why is it doing this? What's going on? I want to read verses 34 to the end because this is an important starting point for Leviticus. Leviticus is answering the question or the problem presented at the end of Exodus. Then the cloud... Oh, okay, no, okay, sorry. got to take a step back. It ends with... Uh, so, so Israel's on Mount Sinai, and God now is going to dwell with his people. God gives them instructions for this tabernacle that, that where God will meet with his people. They, God gives them you know, chapters of instructions, and then there's like chapters after that, word for word, the same thing, except instead of God says, do this, make it like this, it's Israel did it. They made it like that, word for word. I mean, very precise, wonderful, and, and it's showing the precision of their obedience, actually. 
and they obeyed. They made the tabernacle. And then we come to, to this wonderful, at the, at the end of uh, verse 33, he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen at the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. We have the tabernacle. This is it. This is the big moment. And here we go. And the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is it. God's coming to meet with his people for all the people to see. It's in the middle of the camp, right? And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire of it was on that by night, was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So there's that narrative explanation there at the end. But that key there is Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting, this is the place where you meet with God where God comes to his people. And so here's the crisis, the conflict, the problem that now Leviticus enters in. And it says, and he called to Moses. Literally, that's how the Hebrew began. And he called to Moses, the Lord. The Lord called to Moses um, to fix this problem. God is in the tabernacle. People could not enter it. Why? Because they would die, ultimately. God's presence, this glory cloud filled the tabernacle. And Leviticus is helping Israel to now approach God, to come into God's presence. Um, and so that's, that's this what fourth bullet point. It's answer to this question. Um, sorry, no, the third bullet point. It ends with building the tabernacle, Exodus does, and God's glory entering it, but Israel and Moses are not able to enter in to draw near to God. So Leviticus is answering it. And it's, um, it's a book about worship. It's about God and our identity as his people. Again, it's the center here of of this Pentateuch. It's saying, who are we as a people? We're a worshiping people. We're people who draw near to God because God has drawn near to us. Uh, It does say, as y'all said, contains mostly legal code, um, but the law is always a response to a problem. Like we see, I'll show you in a few minutes how the first seven chapters answer that problem that we see where Israel can't come to the tabernacle. The law is answering a problem. The law is not some arbitrary thing set out here. And we also have to, to um, uh, distinguish between what kind of law here. There, we often talk about the three kinds of laws. There's the moral law, say, uh, for example, the Ten Commandments is the moral law. This is true for all people, all places at all times. This is what God morally commands and requires of all people. Um, then we have other kinds of laws that were particular for Israel. Uh, we have the ceremonial law. This Leviticus is ceremonial law religious law. It was teaching them how to worship. It was teaching them um, these ceremonies that would show them who God is and how they're to respond to him. Sacrifices, feasts, that's that's exactly what ceremonial law is. And then there's also civil law. And so penalties for breaking the moral law, um, that's called the civil law. It's for Israel as a nation at that point in time. Uh, God called them to, uh, it was a theocratic rule, and so God as their king set penalties. So that's the the civil law. Here we're looking at ceremonial law, and all ceremonial law is pointing Israel, as we'll see, to Christ, to the greater one who was going to come, who would fulfill all the law, the moral law particularly, fulfill all of it, but the ceremony is pointing them to that redeemer that they need. And we'll see that as we go through. And I keep saying, and we'll see it, and we'll run out of time before we get to see all of it, but we'll do what we can. Um, and I do think it's important for us to look at Leviticus in this bigger context. And we don't have time to unpack it in one, in one time this evening. Um, and I don't want to introduce too many themes here. But this last bullet says, Biblical Theology and Redemptive History. 
This is a typological ascent of God's people through their high priest into the glory cloud presence of God on the mountain of his dwelling place. These are incredibly rich and deep themes that we can't go into right now, tonight. But we see a recapitulation of Eden and actually particularly the Edenic promise held out to God's people. We see those images, those ideas, those themes here that Israel is, is now typologically walking through. And we're seeing that come to fruition in a typological sense that's pointing them ultimately to Christ in the spiritual sense. But we see a lot of typological elements here that point us to, um, to, to Eden, which points us ultimately to the new creation, new heavens, new earth. Lots there. I don't, again, that's just a very thumbnail sketch. Um, I'll pause there before we look at the, the outline of the book. Um, what, are your, what are your thoughts, questions, pushbacks? Start with Kevin, then we'll, we'll come back up. Yeah. You keep emphasizing Leviticus is the center of mm-hmm. the Torah. So right. Are you saying that the, the five scrolls of Torah from end to end have a chiastic structure? Yes, okay. that's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, chiastic structure. C H A I S M, chiasm. Is that right? C H I A? Okay. Um, shows how good my, uh, my Greek is. C H I A. Yes, and that's right. So chi- chiasm, it's the, the letter chi, which is a big X, basically, and it's in Greek, and it's emphasizing the center of a structure. And so let me, uh, where's one of those books I gave you? Well, I hand it out here. I'll show you what, what, how, how scholars will represent chiastic structures um, literarily. Let me do that one, actually. I think that one has more in it. So it's, it's looking at literary structure, and what it's saying is, um, oh, there's so many. So, so look, for example, this page, see the indenting? They're, they're, they're um, saying these ideas kind of come together and form a parallel inside and then the parallel out. So you have A, A prime, B, B prime, C, C prime, D, D prime, and then the center is the F, and the F is the most important thing. And we have these parallel of themes uh, on either side of the F. And so that F is the center of the chiasm and the centerpiece, uh, the most important literary element here. So they use, uh, in, in our, like, po- it's, it's popular in poetry, um, as in, in Hebrew poetry. So our poetry is rhyme and meter. Well, Hebrew poetry is not like that at all. It's repetition. It's um, chiasm. It's some of those types of things instead. So it's just, it's a literary, um, uh, uh, what am I, uh, literary device. Thank you. It's literary device used. Um, and it was, it's used widely, depending on what scholar you read, it's used widely by, by the ancient Hebrew people. Mindy, do you have a question? I've heard an oversimplification, but do you think it's true that the law was given in order to highlight the fact that it was impossible to keep and therefore point people yeah. to the Savior? Um, in a way, yes, I think that's that's fine. Um, but as as long as we're distinguishing between these types of laws, um, I would say overall the Mosaic Covenant, which is established with God's people on Sinai, and the blood is thrown on the people, and they say, "All that you have said, spoken, we will do." They're taking upon themselves the obligations of this Mosaic Covenant. Um, they failed, and I think the point of the Mosaic Covenant was for them to fail, for them to, for to point them to Christ. Um, it is a law covenant. 
Um, now we get into our covenant theology, and that's another discussion. Um, I wouldn't say all of the law is designed for them to fail, but I think the Mosaic economy, as a from a big picture, was to show them, yeah, they would fail. Um, and they needed that promise of the Abrahamic covenant of um, Abraham believed God and it was credited him as righteousness that drove them back to that call of the gospel of, hey, you must look to God and his promises and you will be saved. Um, it's not your obedience. You can't obey. So I, I think maybe it is over, oversimplification. It can be a helpful um, phrase in the right context. We, we may get to some of that in a little bit um, with uh, Leviticus, what, 18. Um, so we may come back to that theme. Let's look at the structure, um, because as you read through Leviticus, if you're doing you know, your Bible in a year plan and you've got to read like four or five chapters a day, it's kind of just tough slogging because you, you're not taking a step back to say, what's the big picture? What is, what is the whole canvas? What's the, what's the box top say before I, before I try to put all the pieces together? Um, and so I think there's really two main sections of Leviticus. You'll see I have my three-point outline below. Um, I think there's two main uh, points, uh, two main sections of Leviticus um, centered upon the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is right in the center there, and that's kind of its own section a little bit. Um, and so on either side of the Day of Atonement, we have something different going on. So we start with um, that problem of nobody can enter into God's presence. God is now dwelling in the tabernacle. How do we enter in? And so the first half of the book Verse, uh, chapters 1 through 15 is about approaching God. It's coming into God's presence. God is providing a means that we can approach him. Uh, this isn't a workspace thing. This is God showing we can approach based on sacrifices. The f- sacrifices are the first, uh, first seven chapters. Um, and they're very detailed, at least for our ears today. Uh, and we'll come back to them if we have time. And depending on your interests, we can, we can um, dive in a little bit more to those. But we start with the five general sacrifices. From there, though, uh, narrative enters into chapters kind of 8, 9, and 10. So these are fascinating chapters. 8, at the end of these sacrifices, um, all the sacrifices talk about the priests. Well, the priests aren't yet fully consecrated. And so we have this consecration ordination of the priests, Aaron and his sons, in chapter 8. A big deal. Lots of sacrifices, lots of things, because the priests have to be purified. To be able to offer sacrifice, you must be pure and set apart. So this is the setting apart of priests. Uh, and then there's ongoing cleanliness that they have to, to do. Um, another topic for another day. There's so many threads that my mind wants to chase, and I'm, I'm pulling back. Um, and then, so chapter 8 is this, um, uh, the priest being consecrated, ordained, set apart. And then we have chapter 9, kind of um, really a, a uh, climax of a sort. A really exciting moment in the life of Israel where you have the priests, and they begin the sacrificial system. They begin... Um, uh, performing the sacrificial system. People are bringing sacrifices. They're rejoicing. They're celebrating. It is a big party for Israel. They now can come into God's presence through the appointed priests. And this is a wonderful thing. Chapter 8 really is like the end of the story. In many ways, it's the party. It's the celebration. We, the problem has been solved. But then, man, we quickly come to chapter 10, where we now have improper worship given. Chapter 9 is proper worship. That's, uh, that's following the law, following these uh, seven chapters of commandments of how do we approach God through these sacrifices he's given us to allow us to approach him. But then chapter 10, we have um, Nadab and Abihu. I guess I'm going to stop here for a moment. Let's go to uh, Leviticus 10 and look at Nadab and Abihu. Um, it's just a few verses that begin 
um, with this. Um, Leviticus 10, I'll start in verse 1. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. This is on the heels of an entire chapter where they're doing everything as the Lord had commanded him. As the Lord had commanded him, they offered this sacrifice as the Lord had commanded him over and over and over. And then we come here. Now they wanted to do this unauthorized fire. I don't know what that means. If it's a sacrifice, it was something in a censer. We don't know exactly. It was something God had not called them to do. And they did something that he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Yeah, I know. It's terrifying, isn't it, Elliot? Um, So this is now improper worship. Somebody trying to come to God on their own merit, on their own terms, doing what they want to do, not what God's called them to do, but they're trying to approach God based on their own means of worship. And they're immediately struck that, struck that, struck down, struck dead, whatever it is, in the presence of God before the Lord. And so this before the Lord language indicates they were inside the tabernacle when that happened. They were inside the tabernacle and died because of their improper worship. Um, and so now we've introduced another problem. So the narrative typically is introducing a problem. Um, and the narrative here introduces a problem. We now have death inside of the holy place where God dwells with the people. This is where God is. God is in this place. And now there's death in it. Not just sin, but death, sinful priests and death. And so it's fascinating. The whole story, you could read the rest of it and Aaron's not allowed to mourn. They have to dr- bring the bodies out and, and dispose of them how God tells them. But now the problem is something dead and sinful has been in God's temple, God's uh, tabernacle. And so what we have then from 11 through 15, this is now laws for cleanliness and purification. These are laws for how do we stay clean and pure. And so we have laws about animals. We have laws about childbirth, laws about leprosy, laws about your house having leprosy mold, uh, laws about all kinds of things, bodily discharges, these things. I didn't preach on all of them. Um, uh, yeah, I wonder why not. Um, uh, and so all of these cleanliness codes are, are part of this. How do we cleanse the tabernacle now that there's dead people in it? And the cleanliness part ends with this day of atonement, the high point of how do we cleanse the tabernacle that's defiled by humans, even though God's dwelling there, it leads us to the day of atonement. So we've now com- concluded this first part, approaching God, and really it comes to conclusion in chapter 16, this day of atonement. And um, this, is a one, this is the high holy day for all of Israel. This is the most sacred day for them for the year. And this was the day where actually the Israelites did not have to come and pilgrimage to Jerusalem for this. And so the details of this are, are excruciating, some might say. Um, the details are, are very, very, it's very, details are detailed um, here. And some of the commentators say that's likely because Israel didn't, or all of Israel didn't go to Jerusalem for the Day of Atonement. They were home and they would read this. Um, or go to their local synagogue, or somebody would know this and read this, or at least they'd hear it at some point, so they would know on that day what was happening in Jerusalem. They would know all the gory details of everything, and it included these two goats, right? And the high priest would come to the goats and confess all of the sins of Israel upon the goats, and they would cast lots, and one goat would be sent outside of the camp, and he would go into the wilderness, and this uh, um, signals or, or, or shows for us 
on the idea of expiation. Expiation where sin is taken away from us. So the, the scapegoat goes into the wilderness and he presumably dies with all the sins of Israel on his, on his back. But then we also have this other goat who then is offered as a sacrifice for Israel in the, ta- in the tabernacle. Uh, it's not like um, he got the better deal because they both ended up at the same place. But this one is a picture of propitiation. Uh, does anybody know what that is? What's propitiation? Say that? That's right. So expiation is a removal of guilt from us. Propitiation is a satisfaction of God's wrathful, just wrath for our sin. So these two, it takes two goats to picture for us what's happening in our salvation with Christ. Christ is both removing our sin and satisfying God, his justice, um, in taking that penalty for us. So both of these, these goats are imaging Christ in different ways. So this is the high point, and the blood is used, and it sprinkles actually inside the holy place and cleanses the holy place, the, temp- the tabernacle, um, every year. And then that's also the day where they go in to the holy of holies and sprinkle blood on that. And the priest has to be cleansed. It's a full, you know, re- it's a full thing. But this is an important thing for all of Israel because it speaks of how is your sin treated. It's explicitly where the high priest puts his hand on the goat's head and confesses all of Israel's sin. These goats now represent sin. And how does God deal with our sin? He takes it from us, puts it on his son, and is, um, his justice is satisfied. The day of atonement is full of gospel hope and promise, and it is that fulcrum of the whole book and of the whole Pentateuch even. You said that the scapegoat and then this, it was a second goat. Mm-hmm, that's right. Okay. So why would it be a second goat versus a lamb? Right. It's a good question. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Okay. There's a number of things like that. It's like, why this and that? I don't know exactly. I can tell you the big picture sketch. Sure. Um, I'm sure somebody could give you a reason. For example, the, the cleanliness laws for what, what animals you can eat, right? Uh, chapter 11. Um, there's a, in one of those books, I, I printed out an article, somebody going through all the scholarly and biblical theologians, like uh, explanations of why these animals and not these animals. And you hear the classic like, oh, well, it's more sanitary to eat these. And so God was protecting them from, um, you know, disease or whatever. That's not true. Um, there, there's all kinds of these popular myths that just, when you look at it scientifically or, or rationally, they're just not true. But it goes through like 12 or 16 different uh, hypotheses people have for why, why certain animals are clean and others are unclean. Um, and uh, I could give you my reasons. That's not, that's kind of beside the point right now or my my conclusion beside the point, because sometimes though, we don't have access to understanding culturally what these things meant. So we don't know exactly all of the ins and outs of why of some particulars. So that does make it hard um, at times for us. Um, So we have the day of atonement and there at the day of atonement, God and and his people are reconciled. God's people are atoned. Um, are atoned for. Atonement is a big word used on and on, over and over through the book. And so what now do we do in light of this atonement? Well, the rest of the book is what I say, communing with God, chapter 17 through 27. And so it is now walking with God. So we're now in God's presence. We are now approaching God. We are with God. We are atoned. Our, to- our, our sins are atoned for. We are, um, and actually in English, do you know the etymology of that word atonement, where it comes from? What's that? It is. It literally is at one mint atonement at one. Like literally, you just put those together, and it, that's uh, it's a 
terrible. To me, it's terrible. Like, really sad to find out that's where it came from. But atonement, at one minute. Like, literally, it is we are now at peace, at one with God. Um, I'm probably the only one who thinks that's that's dumb, and that's good. Uh, you shouldn't think it's dumb. Um, but, uh, all right, I threw myself off there. Um <laughs> It's a good question. I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, it is Kippur, Yom Kippur. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. And that actually has to deal with covering, um, a covering. And so there's a lot of debate. What does that mean? Um, I direct you, direct you to, I think Gerhardus Voss has a good treatment of that in his biblical theology, if I remember correct. Um, these will deal with it as well, but I think that was one of the best, best ones. So um, the meaning of the word Kippur um, yeah, anyway, we can talk more. Um, so then we have, so this last part is communion with God, and it really consists of all law, um, here towards the end, but it actually is quite robust and wonderful as you think through it. So there's a holiness code of, of, of calling us to abide by basically the moral law of God, right? And this holiness code called to be holy as I'm holy. We'll see that verse here in a little bit that shows up in that, uh, those chapters there. Um, and then we have feasts. We have this chapter on the lamps and the bread, feast years, blessings and curses, chapters 26 and 27, and then vows and gratitude wrap it up. Um, and I really love the way it ends. People, people are often debating, how did this last chapter come here or come in? Um, it's talking about vows. What are <coughs> vows? How does that how does that conclude this book of Leviticus? But vows were voluntary things that were done when you were grateful for what God has done for you. And so at the end of it, it's regulating how you do vows uh, and particular aspects of it. And it's saying, in light of all of this, you're going to be grateful people. And here's how to express your gratefulness and thankfulness to God. In light of the gospel, let's live out gratitude. And so I think it's a wonderful, perfectly, perfect theological explanation uh, for how the book ends the way it does. And then... Um, and then lead you into numbers next time. So um, there's, our, there's our structure and outline. Where are we on time? We're obviously not doing great on time. Um, so I want to I wanna read two, uh, three of these well-known verses. You may not even know it. these verses come from Leviticus. Uh, this first one's quoted three times in the New Testament, two, maybe three. Um, the third time's at least an illusion. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. This, this comes from the holiness code section where it's recapitulating uh, the, the moral law of God. It's saying, hey, live and abide by the moral law of God. And uh, Paul actually quotes this in Romans and Galatians to say, um, this is a setup of obedience that is not the basis of your justification, of your salvation before God. This is a different means of attaining justification than, than by grace through faith. So it's fascinating how he uses Leviticus as the um, the anti example for grace by grace salvation by grace through faith. Now, does that mean Leviticus is not gospel? Well, no. But what it's saying is what you were saying earlier is that the law as a covenant set up for Israel condemned Israel. They couldn't keep it. it says do this and you will live. Abided by the law and you will live in the land. And they couldn't. They were exiled from the land. Um, so that's a fascinating verse. So much depth we could go into there. Um, the next one is Leviticus 19.2. Um, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Again, in this holiness code section where uh, we now have a holy God who has purified us and we're now called to live 
uh, in light of that holiness that is ours. We're to obey God and live in a way that glorifies him. Two places where it's explicitly cited in the New Testament. And then Leviticus 19, uh, verse 18. uh, Who would expect this to be from Leviticus? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. People probably don't think that comes from Leviticus, but it does. Um, Six, maybe up to nine times it's quoted in the New Testament. So um, some well-known important verses. Uh, We'll stop there before we look at some themes here. Any questions? All right, let's look at some themes. Uh, One is atonement through God's appointed sacrifice. This is the drumbeat of the whole book. Um, you you are reconciled to God through God's appointed sacrifice. There's atonement. There's that one minute. There's a rest, rest, uh, what am I looking for? Um, That relationship is restored, a restoration of the relationship between God and his people through a blood sacrifice, through this appointed sacrifice. In the Old Testament, this was animals, but ultimately they're pointing forward to Christ. Um, The centrality of worship. So this Old Testament ceremonial law is not binding on us any longer, but the principles are instructive. It shows us uh, who God is, who we are. Um, Worship is as engaging and formative. You read through these these sacrifices, and these were not just rote things that God's people were supposed to do. Um, These were deeply engaging at the heart level. And you you engage with these sacrifices uh, by faith, looking to God who's providing uh, this means of of uh, covering your sins, and ultimately, it's they're it's putting their faith in Christ, the final sacrifice, the one who is to come, who would be the once for all sacrifice. Um, Nadab and Abihu teach us that we must worship God how He has instructed us. We don't have an option; we only worship in the way that God has commanded. Now, we don't worship according to the Old Testament law anymore because that has been abolished, um, and we see that in Ephesians, uh, what chapter three, chapter four. Um, but we still, the principle still stands. The second commandment, the commandments affirms this. We only worship God how he has commanded us to worship. That is all, that is the only thing that is permissible for us to do. Um, and then we see worship includes rehearsal of God's provision of salvation and our response of praise and gratitude. And we'll see this a little bit more as we look at the sacrifices in a moment. Um, but worship includes God speaking God demonstrating, God showing his grace and our response in worship of of praise and thanksgiving, but in life of gratitude as well. So worship is that dialogical nature. God speaks and we respond. We see that in Leviticus. Um, All right, five sacrifices. Um, I'm going to skip it and come back to it in a minute because I think people are interested in that. Uh, We have the Feast of, of Leviticus 23. Um, on the back, can, back side here, I thought this is a, this is a fascinating chart that um, in, a, in another book I read, you can see the book there at the top, um, really helpful. Like this is the calendar year for Israel. It starts around April, March, April at the beginning, and then runs, you know, obviously 12 months uh, back then. So the most important month of the year was month seven with the day of atonement. The, the Feast of Trumpets was one day, trumpets blast at the beginning of the month to announce the seventh month is here. Uh, the number seven repeats itself a lot through this book, particularly in these feasts. The Day of Atonement is here, and then the Feast of Booths. So Day of Atonement, everybody stays home, but then the Feast of Booths, everybody goes to Jerusalem. And that's the biggest uh, feast of the year. The Day of Atonement is the only, um, uh, the only day of fasting for Israel in the year. All these other feasts are feasts. Um, and so the Feast of Booths is to celebrate that, that work of, of God on the Day of Atonement. 
Um, this is fascinating. Lots of good stuff there. I, I'm going to skip it. Um, there is also this idea of sacred time. We lose that in our world and culture today. We don't think of sacred time. Um, the weekly Sabbath is highlighted here as the heartbeat. And today that continues, the sacred time. This day is sacred time. It's a sacred day, a holy day set apart by God. Um, but there's other sacred times in the Old Testament. Annual feasts were sacred and set apart. Uh, but the Sabbath year, every seven years, the seventh year, was um, the land would have to lay fallow. Um, and it was a day of, or a year of rest for the land. And the year of Jubilee was after seven Sabbath years, the year after. So the 50th year was a year of Jubilee where property was restored to its original owner. All the slaves went free. A year of feasting. God would provide for them in that year based on uh, two years prior. Um, the, 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 the crops from two years prior will, will provide for the year, the, the seventh year, the Sabbath year, and then also that year of Jubilee. But we actually don't have record anywhere that Israel ever observed a year of Jubilee, sadly. Um, maybe they did, but we don't have record of it. Uh, and then we see the holiness of God. That's a huge piece here. Uh, the perfect sacrifice is required. Um, a, um, an unblemished sacrifice, requirement of perfect cleanliness. Um, and it's interesting when you get into this cleanliness code, the greater degree of holiness or cleanliness is required, the nearer you are to God. So the Holy of Holies has a, has a highest, the highest level of purity, only the high priest once a year after he's been purified. And then the tabernacle itself, um, uh, the holy place, uh, that's a, a slightly lesser degree, but still a very high degree of holiness. And then you have the whole, uh, the whole structure of the, the tabernacle, uh, including the courts where the sacrifices are offered. Then you have outside, then you have the, uh, the, the city, and then you have outside the city, and then you have outside of the, the nation. There's various uh, levels of holiness required uh, for each one. And it's because as you approach God, there's a higher requirement of holiness because God is holy. And this call to holy living as well. Um, and then we see one, one of my favorite things in studying this was, was coming into chapter 24 and understanding the significance of it with this, um, this details about the lamps always being on in the tabernacle and the bread having to be replaced. Uh, 12 loaves of bread every week had to be replaced and the bread could only be eaten by the priests and it couldn't be taken outside of the tabernacle, all this weird stuff. And what this is, is God's picture that the lamp is God's face of blessing and the, the bread is the picture of, of Israel. It's the 12 tribes, God's people. And the lamp of God's blessed face is shining upon Israel always. Even at the darkest night when the storm is blowing over, you know, Israel, you would walk by the tabernacle, you'd see the light still, the light's left on for you inside, right? It's the lamp is still on. No matter how bad you're feeling, no matter how horrible of a week it's been, God's lamp, his blessed face, his blessed presence is still shining upon his people. A beautiful imagery there that God is now dwelling with his people always. And there's nothing that we can do um, for him to move away from us. Um, So those are some of our themes. Christ is in every aspect here. It's showing us to Christ, pointing us to our need of Christ. I want to look through these five sacrifices. Oh, we're like two minutes. Um, Sorry. Um, All right. I got one that's okay. If you need to leave, you're allowed to. Um, Let me just hit these really quickly. The first three you'll probably be most familiar with. Great. Sorry. The first three maybe you'll be most familiar with. First is the burnt offering. This is what you typically think of a sacrifice. The whole offering was burned. Literally, everything was burned. Um, and it's a whole burnt offering. Um, this was to picture that man deserves to die for their sin. Um, 
everything is burnt up. Uh, this is the, the uh, completeness of Christ's sacrifice. His whole person was offered for us. Uh, and this was voluntary for individuals. It was required at different feasts and different times of the year, but it was voluntary for individuals to offer a burnt offering. And that would be like a whole 600-pound cow you know, you'd bring. Um, various, there's all kinds of regulations for these, but then next is the grain offering where you'd bring a bunch of different kinds of grains and, and bread that you've made and you would, uh, come in and it would, and the point here was to emphasize tribute to a King. This is an offering of, of things, of finances, of resources to, to offer it to the King because you love him and appreciate him, are thankful for him. And yeah, uh, that's part of the first fruits offering. Yes. That's right, exactly. So that's, that one's going to be connected to um, the annual feasts. But yes, same, same idea. That's right. Um, and so part of the grain offering would actually go to the, the Levites and the priests, and it would feed them and their families. Um, part of it would be burnt up. Actually, only a handful of the grain would be burnt up, and the rest of it would go help fund the Levites. But this was a, an express, expression of thanksgiving. Um, next one is the peace offering. This is maybe my favorite one because we don't really think about this very often. There's three, three subtypes of peace offering. We'll speak of it generally. Um, the peace offering, um, what you would do is you would bring a whole cow, you know, a 600-pound cow. Uh, certain parts, you would take the fat, which would be the best parts of it, and you would burn that on the altar. There's some cuts of the meat that the priest would take. But then you took the rest home. You took the majority of it home, and you had to have a party within 48 hours, and you had to eat it. And so this peace offering, maybe it was 24, 48, depending on the kind, um, you had to take it home and eat it. You had to have your neighbors over it. You had to have a big feast. This was a celebration of what God has done for his people. And the peace offering always had to follow a burnt offering. So on top of this burnt offering where everything was offered to atone for sins, now we have peace and fellowship with God. Now we have a meal. Now we have a feast. Now we have a party. It's a wonderful thing. And again, this was voluntary. No individual ever had to bring a peace offering. They did on a corporate level have to bring peace offerings at at various times. Um, But um, it was not required, but it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. Um, Amen, Brother Elliot. Um, The fourth is a sin offering. Uh, What's often called sin, I think it's better to call it a purification offering. Um, because here the sinner is purified. Anytime you sin, and that's not technically correct, anytime there's what's called an unintentional sin, which really means a sin you're repentant of. If you're repentant of sin, you come and offer a sin offering. So this was mandatory. This was required. Um, when you understood that you've sinned, you have to come and offer a sin offering. And this was to um, indicate that sin must be cleansed and purified. And this is God purifying his people, purifying you from your sin. Um, so purification there was the most important aspect. And then the last one is this guilt offering. Again, what the ESV calls guilt offering. Um, these last two are kind of confusing. When you read sin offering and guilt offering, what in the world? I thought that's what we read about, especially in the first one. Um, so that's why I like to call it purification offering and then the reparation offering. I think it's a better way to think of it. Um, because this one was like the fourth one, required when you harmed somebody and had to repay something. Uh, to them. Whether you're actually robbing from God, uh, there's a number of things you could do to harm God's, God's tabernacle, to harm a Levite. Um, you had to pay money to the tabernacle, to God's people, or to God's um, priests. Or if you stole from somebody, you had to bring a reparation offering and give them back uh, what you've taken from them. 
And so the emphasis here is my sin harms and I need to repair the damage that I've done in my sin. So that was required if you have caused that kind of harm to people. So these are the five main offerings and um, every feast has a requirement of different ones, different elements. But all of this goes back, uh, the, the point of all of this is not, you know, we say, where's Christ in Leviticus? It's not, we're just not, try, we're not playing a game to see, okay, who can find Jesus more? But this is really getting to the heartbeat of all of scripture. Why is this even here to begin with? What is the purpose of all this is to point us to that appointed sacrifice that God has given that you and I would not be that offering on the altar. You and I would not be burnt up wholly and completely as a just punishment for our sin. And so when we see Christ in Leviticus, it's, um, it's, it's the purpose of Leviticus. It's to show us Jesus. It was to show Israel that, um, that God was atoning for their sins. But Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats never took away any sin. So what's the point? Why would they do this? Why did God make them do this? Because it wasn't the bulls and goats that that was the point here. It was the bulls and goats pointing them to the one who would would complete, uh, who would be the once for all sacrifice. The one who could actually take away sin because he was the God man. So we read Leviticus with an eye towards the fact that this was just a mere shadow, a a mere foretaste of the greatness of the coming sacrifice, the coming feast, the coming lamp to shine his face upon you forever and ever. So there's Leviticus for you. In a nutshell, we are over four minutes. Um, What I'd say is um, I'll close us in prayer. We can sing. And if you want to talk afterwards, I'm all up for talking more. So uh, let me pray and then we'll, we'll sing. Thank you, Lord, for your word and this great book where you have shown for us Christ. Where apart from this work, this book, we would have a much, uh, a a much um, deprived view of, of, who Christ is, and what his sacrifice means for us. And so we thank you that Christ is that guilt offering who has atoned for our sins. Christ is that, that ram that goes into the wilderness to take our sins upon his shoulder. Christ is the one who has died for us to appease, to satisfy your just wrath. And so we thank you for Christ, and we thank you that we can stand here covered in his blood, purified by him. And so we pray that you would enable us this week to live as becomes a follower of Christ, that you would help us to honor you and to be holy as you are holy, not to earn our salvation, but out of gratitude and thanksgiving for all that you've done for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.